Okay, here's the deal. I'm over here. Video ends. Who applauds for the video? Nope. Nobody. I walk on the stage. What do I get? Emily Post, you know who she is? She's the etiquette lady. She says it's impolite not to stand if one person stands on a standing ovation. Thank you so much. That's how bad my life is. I have to beg. That's okay. Lie to me as long as you're sincere. It's okay. That's fine. Uh, but uh, we do turn, nonetheless, to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6 together again in just a moment. Um, now, you, you, you can go one of two directions with this. You can say, oh, great, we're doing verses 1 through 6 again. I've almost got it memorized, as if there would be something bad about that. Um, or you could say, we get to do verses 1 through 6 again. And we, we've just been working through and uh, seeing the texture of how Paul is calling the body of believers, the collection of God's people, the congregation of saints uh, into uh, a unity in the body. And that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at for the next two or three weeks, and that is the, uh, the onenesses that, that undergird the unity of the church. It, it, we're going to see that in verses 4, 5, and 6, where he says there's one body and one spirit and one hope, that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and, and Father of us all. But as we look at that, understand that these things are not obvious. These, are, these aren't things that would just leap to mind uh, in, in the normal human way of thinking. You know, uh, it, it says, for example, one body, and the first thing the world is going to say, what do you mean one body? There's a bunch of different churches. You guys can't even get along with, with one another. You've got all these denominations and traditions and theological positions and arguments and interpretations and, and so forth. And, and the fact is that's absolutely true because we've got all these things in the church called people. And uh, we don't see things uh, uh, all the time the right way or the same way. And, and that happens. But, you know, the amazing thing is there's just one spirit that brings that all together in a unity that transcends the things that, that look like we're arguing about. And ultimately, when we get to heaven and you walk in the gates, nobody's going to say, are you a friend of the Baptists or a friend of the Lutherans or a friend of the Catholics? Where would you like to sit? There's just going to be one body, and that'll be the body of Christ. And there'll just be one way of worshiping, and that will be to give glory to the Father through the Son even then by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's only going to be one understanding, and that's going to be the anthem sung of the glory of God's grace in saving us for all eternity. So there is one body. We haven't achieved that yet. We haven't realized that on earth yet, but it's there, and that's the goal, and that's the purpose. And there's one spirit, and there's one hope, and there's one Lord, and there's one faith, and, and to all these, the world would come back and say, well, why don't you try something else? Why don't you try a different Lord? Why don't you try a different faith, a different religion? Why don't you try a different baptism, that is, a different allegiance, a different loyalty? For each one of these things, the world will rise up and say, why don't you try a different God other than the true and living God, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? So as we read these 
seven things that Paul says there's just one of these things. What we're reading is the undergirding foundation for the unity of the church. The things that as we all point to these one things, then we are coming together. As we move towards those, we're moving towards one another. And that's uh, Paul's purpose really in writing this paragraph of Scripture. He starts out and he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He says one of the things that means is working towards these, these aspects of what God is doing in your life that bring about unity and bring you together in a marvelous and in a fantastic way. So that's why we're reading these things. That's why um, we're going to spend a couple of weeks uh, thinking about them is to get us on the page of these fundamentals of the unity of the Christian body, of the, of the church, uh, the body of Jesus Christ. So with that as an introduction, let's look at verse 1, chapter 4. And Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that you transcend the divisiveness of our lives. That, Father, though we categorize one another and we, we judge one another, that, Father, you bring us together by your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, I'm thankful that though we falter, you pick us up, and though we are failing, you, you bring us to your goal and your purpose. Father, though we are weak, you strengthen us for the journey and for the work of the, of, of the mission. Father, I'm just so thankful that you're the one working here in this place, in this church. And so I pray that we would be diligent in offering ourselves to you, first of all, and then to one another, that we would be servants, that we would learn to minister, and as you have loved us, we would learn to love one another. Father, I pray that you would give us that kind of unity, that kind of oneness, so that with a singleness of voice and mind and heart, we would lift up and exalt the name of Jesus, that all would hear of him, know him, fall in love with him, serve him. And Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are so many things about the Christian life and the Christian faith that are a combination of now and not yet. Uh, salvation itself is a now and not yet, but later to come experience. For example, the moment you ask Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior, repenting of your sins, asking for forgiveness. At that moment, you are born again. You are a child of God. No one can ever take away from you your place in heaven for all eternity. Your salvation is secure. Salvation is now. But there's a part of salvation that is not yet. For when God saves us, he not only saves us from our sins, but he saves us for and to his glory. 
He saves us so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ and by looking like Jesus, reflect who God is and give glory back to the Father that he alone deserves. And we're about that process. It's something that's going on. Because we look at our lives and say, yeah, I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. But I look at my life and there's a lot of the old life still there. There's a lot of the old problems, the old hang-ups, the old sorrows. There's a lot of the old questions and doubts and confusions. There's a lot of things that I'm still doing now that I used to do, and it doesn't look a lot different. But here's the thing. God sends us his Holy Spirit to work a work of sanctification in us. And that Holy Spirit is working day by day to bring us from where we are now to where we will be but are not yet. And so salvation itself is a now and not yet kind of thing. And our confidence, and to jump ahead, our hope is that God will complete the work that he has begun in us. And he will not fail in doing it. There are other things about the Christian faith that are now and not yet, and the church happens to be one of them. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the place where believers gather together and worship and serve and minister and witness. The church is a collection of real life human beings coming together as the body of Christ, which is an emblem of perfection, and yet we are also human beings and the very essence of imperfection. And so it's not very hard to find problems in the church. In in some ways, we all are a problem in the church. Some of us more than others, and some of us two more than others, but but that's another sermon for another day. But But the church is called to be the perfection of the body of Christ, but we're not there yet. But Paul says, as you walk in a manner worthy of your calling, as you live out your life in a way that reflects the end goal that, uh, to which God has called you, as you walk in a manner worthy of your calling, here are some of the things that are out there, not yet, that are going to be now and not yet all at the same time. And so as he talks about Christian unity, we don't see that unity yet, but we're moving there and we're getting there. And Paul, it's almost as if Paul says, so keep your eye on the end goal. Have just a little bit of focus on what you need to do. There are a lot of things in life that will be changed if you can just focus on what's essential and what really matters. Um, I, uh, I won't tell you that I used to play golf, but I will tell you that I don't play golf now. I haven't for decades, and that's because I respect the game too much. Um, I played golf for a little while in college, and that was enough to convince me that life is too short to learn the game of golf. But uh, while, while I was trying to learn the game, one of the, one of the things you have to do is, is hit the ball. And uh, I didn't know that. Uh, so, uh, but, uh, uh, so I, I, would, I would work on, on the first stroke, the, the drive, and uh, I would read books on this because I had a terrific uh, a slice uh, shot. If only they designed golf courses with dog legs that went 50 yards out and 150 yards to the right, I would have been 
I would have been a scratch golfer, but they don't do that. They, they know that's how I hit the ball, so they dog leg left all the time. But, um, but anyway, so I was trying to improve my drive, and I would buy books, and I found out that, well, it, it matters where you put your feet and shoulder width and comfortable and bend the knees, don't bend the knees, and, and, and address the ball, high ball, and then, then, uh, <laughs> and then uh, keep the arms straight, and then cock the wrist, don't cock the wrist, on the back swing, up back swing, down back swing, down before you go over and out, inside out, outside in. And I was thinking about a thousand things. And what I noticed about people who actually play golf they don't think about anything when they're hitting the ball. They just hit the ball. They're focused on the task at hand, just hitting the ball. Now, they know all the things about the swing. I mean, they know how to analyze the swing, and if their swing goes bad, they know what to do and adjustments to make. But ultimately, you can't think about the thousand and one things that go into a golf swing if you're going to hit the ball. You have to focus. You have to focus on what really matters. And so Paul says, I want you to focus as you're living in the body of Christ, just focus on these things that matter. So one of the things I want you to focus on is to remember that there is one body of Christ. There's just one body. The world is going to try to, to segment your life and, and have you belong to a lot of different bodies, if you will, a lot of different societies or groups or cults or uh, uh, clubs, um, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, the, the world is going to try to get you to just fragment your life all over the place. And even though we have something called social media, it actually doesn't bring us together. It just fragments us and keeps us apart. I was at a family reunion where I met some relative who's somewhere on the family tree. I don't know where, uh, but I was talking to her. She was a high school student. And uh, she, she, we were talking about texting on the phone and all that. And she said, I've got a problem. I said, what's that? She said, I text my boyfriend all day long. And then when we finally see each other, we have nothing to say. I suggested getting rid of the phone. That didn't sit well. She wanted a different answer to that. But, you know, our, our social media is actually anti-social media. And our world is just tearing us apart. But Paul said, keep your eye on this goal. There's one body. There's one place where you belong. There's one place where you are united with other people, and that is in the body of Christ, in the church. Paul said that's a part of the calling to which you've been called. Uh, that, that word call is actually kind of interesting, I think. Um, in Hebrew, the word for call is kahal. It has no uh, relationship at all to the English word call, but it sure sounds like it, kahal, and that's why I could remember it. But uh, the word kahal in Hebrew, it means to call, and it's also the word that's used in the Old Testament to talk about the assembly of God's people. When they came together, the congregation of, their, of, of God's people was called the kahal. Now, when the uh, Old Testament Hebrew was translated into the Greek, they wanted a word that, that sounded like kahal or it had the same kind of meaning, and so they used a word, ekklesia, which, of course, comes from two Greek words. Ek, meaning forth, to come out from or to come forth, and then uh, uh, kaleo, klesia, kaleo, from which we, by the way, we do get our English word call, that means call. And so the ekklesia was the uh, coming together, the called out ones, the people who were called together. This was God's calling that brought us together. See, that idea of togetherness um, just, just runs through it all. Sometimes you, you, you hear the word synagogue, 
Uh, Greek is synagoge. It comes also from two Greek words. One is soon, which means with. Um, uh, it's the same word uh, that in the word sympathy is to feel something with somebody. Symphony is to sound something with somebody. Uh, and so synagoge um, is soon together with and then uh, ago, which means to lead or to bring. And so a synagogue was a bringing together of people for the purpose of worship. Um, if you wanted to translate into that into Latin, you would use the word congregation from two Latin words. Uh, you know, and, and con is, is, you know, it means with. And then uh, the other word is uh, um, uh, aggregare, uh, I believe it is. Uh, we get our word aggregate, those of you who deal in uh, concrete. Aggregate is this word. It, it meant a flock of birds. Uh, how, how we get to concrete, I'm not real sure. but um, Well, actually, I do know. Birds of a feather stick together in aggregate. <laughs> you think I'm making this up, don't you? <laughs> but an aggregate is what holds concrete together. But uh, aggregare was, was, uh, had, had reference to a flock of birds, and con aggregare, congregate, meant to bring a flock of birds together. In other words, it, this, the church is a collection of bird brains, of uh, birds <laughs> who, who, have, who have come together. You see, the, the whole meaning, just of the meaning uh, 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 of, the, uh, of the word congregation and, and synagogue and ecclesia and kahal all has the idea of coming together and being together. Now, the word church uh, comes from a Greek word, kuriakos. Uh, based on the word kurios, kurios is the Greek word for Lord. Kuriakos means belonging to the Lord. And so you would say something like, I'm going to the building that belongs to the Lord when you were going to worship with other believers. And so you'd say, I'm going to the Kuriakos building. I'm going to the Kuriakos. I'm going to, and then German, in German that comes down to Kirk from Kuriakos to Kirk. Do you hear that? Just tell me you do. Make me happy. I, I think this is interesting. And from Kirk comes the English word church because if you take the CH at the beginning and the end of the word church and instead of that CH being the chus sound, it becomes a hard uh, K sound, as in Christmas and Christ, uh, that C-H becomes uh, Kirk. Uh, the church is the Kirk. And the word church just means belonging to the Lord. So what the church is, is, is the collection of people called out, flocking together, belonging to the Lord. And that is our calling in Christ Jesus. You remember that Jesus, uh, outside of Caesarea Philippi, um, he brought his disciples together, and he said, Folks, uh, tell me, who do people say that I am? And they said, Well, there's a bunch of explanations for you, Jesus. You know, some people say you're a prophet, a teacher. Some think you're Ezekiel, you know, that, that kind of thing. But then Jesus said, But who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Peter had no idea the depth of what he was saying. But the Holy Spirit had moved him in that moment to make that, that, that confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said to him, he says, you know, your name is Peter, and I'm going to call you the rock. You're going to be Peter, means rock. But then Jesus went on to say, he said, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, people have, have talked about, what did Jesus mean by that? Did he mean Peter was the rock on which the church is built? I think if you asked Peter, are you the rock upon, upon which the church was built? Peter would say, I sure hope not. <laughs> I mean, Peter was, was 
I think by the time Jesus got through with him, pretty much aware of his frailty and his weaknesses and his missteps and how he didn't quite get things right all the time. I think if you ask Peter, what did Jesus mean by that? He would say something. I think what he meant was, you're Peter and you just confessed that I am, I am the Christ. And that's the rock upon which I will build my church. The collection of God's people will be built on the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And while we might get sidetracked on other things and while we might um, have our attention distracted in other directions, ultimately there is one body of Jesus Christ because we have one foundation, and that is our profession of faith and our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And that's why there's just one body. Now, here on earth, we're getting a lot of different expressions of that, and we've got a lot of different opinions going on. But as uh, somebody wrote on the wall of the basement of uh, the Duke University Chapel one time, when Jesus comes again, all the isms will be wasms, and there will just be one Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. So that's, that's, that's where we're looking to this one body, Jesus Christ. And that's the importance of the church. You know, it's normative for, uh, in the New Testament for every believer in Jesus Christ to be a member of the church, to be brought into the church. This is what happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost where uh, Peter was preaching and, and talking about Jesus. You know, God sent him, you killed him, God raised him. The people said, well, what should we do? And, G and Peter said, well, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, confessing the Lord Jesus, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible says that some 3,000 people were added, added to what? Added to the church that day. At the end of that chapter, it says, and God was adding to the church everyone who believed. You see, the, the New Testament pattern, the New Testament understanding is belief in Jesus Christ results in church membership and involvement. It, 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 it results in belonging to the body of Christ and living in the body of Christ. You see, the church is to be the, the environment and the, the place where we learn and grow and encourage one another to be more and more like Jesus every day. And that is our one goal and our one purpose. That's why around here we talk about having a seamless journey with Christ. It, it begins with the little ones in the nursery, and as, and as someone is holding them, they're, they're talking about, here's what the love of God means. Someone will hold you and care for you and protect you. And as that preschooler gets older and their, and their minds begin to work more, and they do, um, but as, as, as they grow older, they come to understand a little bit more and a little bit more. And finally, as a, as a young child perhaps comes to that understanding, I want Jesus in my heart to be my Lord and Savior. And you say, why? Say, because I want to take communion <laughs> you know, or something. But God honors the faith of a child. You know? I mean, if God demanded perfect faith, perfect understanding, I, I'm sunk today. But God honors the faith of a child. I want Jesus in my heart to be my Lord and Savior. But you know, it doesn't stop there. That's just the starting point. That's just the beginning. That's just the launching pad for a life of growing and learning about Jesus and learning to be more like him. The, the normal process in, just in human development is a little preschooler who, who uh, uh, comes to know Jesus then grows up, and then in those adolescent years, you know, when you get into high school, you start to figure out, well, I'm, I'm not sure if I want to be a part of this. 
You know, the world's telling me some other things that I need to be doing, and, the, and, and uh, my mind is telling me that I've got questions and doubts. And so there's, there's this process by which that faith that was given to the child and belonged to the parents, belonged to the child, but they rested on, on, on their confidence in their parents, has to become the faith of that, that adolescent for themselves. It has to become a personal faith. Now, I'll tell you what happens to a lot of us. We get into college, and somewhere in the first couple of years of college, you know, when we're out on our own and we're making our own decisions and we're deciding you know, where, where we fit into the universe and all that, a lot of times what happens is the Holy Spirit comes to you, and suddenly that faith of a child and that faith of, a, of an adolescent becomes the faith of a young adult, where you say, not just I believe it and not just it seems right, but this is who I am from now on, forever, into all eternity. You know? But we've got to be patient with one another as we're growing to that spot, to that spot because as you grow in Christ, you know, there, there's a lot of ways to mess this thing up, and most of us find at least one of them every now and then. And we have to be patient with each other and, and, and comfortable with imperfection around one another. But what we keep in front of us is there is one body, and that is the body of Jesus Christ. And the goal is that oneness. And where does it come from? It comes from a singleness of heart and mind in pursuing being like Jesus, being like Jesus. And when we all get to heaven, we're going to look at him. We're going to say, that's who I wanted to be all along. And we'll praise and glorify the Father that he brought us along that journey together. That's what the church is about. The one church is all about. And so we talk about that seamless journey around here. It's why we encourage you to, uh, uh, to let the kids run a little wild so that, uh, you know, this place, you know, children are very physical uh, in their understanding. Everything is, you know, you've got to be very graphic about it. Um, but they need to know this place is a place where they are loved and where they, where they belong. And then they'll come to understand that this fellowship is the place where they're loved and where they belong. And it needs to be a seamless journey from cradle to grave as we walk this path of Christian discipleship together. And so uh, I, I would just say, you know, focus. You know, focus on the end goal. The focus is that one body of Christ. It'll, it'll have some, some very practical kinds of applications in life. Uh, one of them is that if we're focused on being the one body of Christ, then we're going to, um, going to develop habits of attendance. We'll just kind of like be here a lot will come together a lot. Um, and as the old Baptist uh, covenant used to say, when we leave this place, we endeavor to find another church of like faith and order. In other words, wherever we go, we're going to find a church. We're going to be involved in a body of Christ. It will never be the perfect body. The moment we join it, but we are aimed at that goal, the one body of Christ. So there, there will be habits of membership and there, of attendance. There will be habits of personal connection. And uh, here's what I mean by that. Is it, 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 there's, there's a way to, to sort of come to church and fill a pew and go through the thing and be inspired and feel really good and, and to, to head out of the place, you know, and just out the door. When you know that this is the body of Christ, believers called together in God's family, then, then you're going to want to make personal connections. And the easiest way to do that, by the way, is in a small group Bible study. 
in a group, a smaller group of people where you can ask your questions, make your observations, where you study the Word together, and the Spirit works in your midst, and you grow closer to one another, and you make friendships and those kinds of things. And uh, for years and years, we called small group Bible study. We just called it Sunday school. And it wasn't for children. It was for every age. Uh, Baptists, by the way, were very odd in that. Most denominations didn't do that. Uh, but it was, it was a place to get together in a small group and study the Word together and make personal connections with other believers in Jesus Christ. And so, uh, just, just in a very practical thing, if you're not a part of a Bible study class, you know, starts at 9.30, for right now it starts at 9.30 and runs to 10.30, if you're not part, just make yourself a part of, of a class. You know, and just, just involved in that kind of fellowship. And not only will you develop uh, patterns of habitual attendance and patterns of personal connection, you'll also develop patterns of personal investment. And I know what you're doing. You're, you're, you're stepping back and you're saying, oh, no, oh, no, he's, he's going to talk about money now. And, and, this, and, and I don't know. It's, it's, it, it includes money, but it's much more than that. You know? it's, it's not like we want 10%. We want it all. <laughs> and by that I mean we want your heart and your mind and your soul to be sold out to Jesus. And so your whole self, your whole being, not only an investment of, of, of money, that's the easiest thing, but an investment of time and an investment of your, of your life resources, an investment of your talents and your energies, an, an investment so that you become a servant to others and you minister to others and, and you're a help to others. In other words, just, just involving yourself in the ministry of the body of Christ. Those, those are just three sort of very quick, practical ways that having your eyes focused on the one body of Christ uh, can, can change your life and change how you're leading. So, um, the, the, the first thing I was saying, let, let's keep our eyes focused. Let's, let's be focused on this, the one body of Christ. And we may not be there yet. We may not uh, have it perfected yet. We may not have achieved all we're supposed to achieve yet, but that's the goal, and that's where we're headed. And ultimately, God will do that um, in his glory. So one body. And then he goes on to say one spirit. There's one spirit. Now, I guess in a Christian sense, that's, that's sort of easy to say. But in a worldly sense, there's a lot of, if you will, spirits vying for your attention. There's a lot of ways to try to be motivated in, in your life and a lot of ways in which uh, uh, you, you can look for direction and guidance in life. A lot of places to look as to what shall I do now and how shall I live. But there is only one Holy Spirit of God, and that is the spirit that is to reign in us and through us and over us. Let me give you a little insight into what Jesus said about this. This is found in John chapter uh, 16. Actually, uh, back that up one chapter to chapter 15, the, the very last uh, uh, couple of verses. That sticks together. Uh, th this would be John 15, 26. Now, this, this is where Jesus is talking to the disciples. It's his last time he taught them before being crucified. And sometimes go back and read chapters 14 through 17. And just see what Jesus talks about. He talks about the glory of the Father. He talks about the relationship of the Father and the Son. And he talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when Jesus taught his disciples, the last thing he taught them was the Trinity. The glory of the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's some of the things that he said about the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is in uh, John 15, 26. He says, but when the Helper comes... Now, that word Helper... Um, well, the Greek word won't help you, but uh, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the easiest way to put it for right now. But when the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. 
Now bypass all the debate that church history has about this. But what we know is that the Holy Spirit comes to us from the Father through the Son. You see the Trinity working on here? Okay. The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus says, uh, the first thing i got to tell you is that the Holy Spirit is going to come and he will bear witness of the Son. Now, folks, I would never have come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior, the only one who can redeem me. I would never have come to that conclusion apart from the Holy Spirit. I'm just not that smart. You might be. I mean, you might have figured it out. You, you might be intelligent enough that all you had to hear was a couple of concepts and you'd stitch it all together and, and say, wow, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. But for the rest of us, we need the Holy Spirit to show us who Jesus is and to bear witness to Christ. You know, a teacher will tell you that you can put all kinds of information in front of a student But something else has to happen before that student learns. And nobody can really tell you what it is. In Christian witnessing, you can put all the truth of the gospel in front of a person. You can show them the wonders of God's grace in Christ. But something else has to happen besides the mere conveyance of information. There has to be the work of the Holy Spirit to move that heart, to reach out and, and ask Christ in to their life. And so the Holy Spirit brings a witness to our lives. And, and just practically, what a joy it is to know that as I share Christ with my family, you know, as you teach your children and, and as my grandchildren are being taught, that I can rely upon the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit to do the witnessing and the teaching and bring about that moment when what is just said on the outside becomes something embraced on the inside. That, that's why you have, if I can jump ahead, that's why you have hope for your family. That's why you have hope for your friends. That's why you never give up. That's why you, you know that it's not, you know, it's not that I'm failing because I don't have the right words. It's up to that person's response to the wooing and the invitation of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So the, 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 first of all, the Holy Spirit brings a witness. Then if you skip down to verse 7 in chapter 16, John 16, 7, Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth is to your advantage I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in, in me, which is the foundation of all uh, sin. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, because righteousness is a right relationship to the Father, found only in the Son, and you'll see me no longer. And verse 11, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged, because Jesus Christ has brought redemption to a lost humanity. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. And so you no longer have to judge other people. I hereby absolve you from needing to ever judge anybody ever again. Now, we have wisdom, and we understand what's going on, and we can see what biblical principles are, and we know what scriptural morality is, we know things that are antithetical to who God is, and we, and we, and we can recognize uh, when a life is being lived in, in disobedience to God. But I have no right, and nor do I have the need to pass judgment on anybody. All I do is witness to the truth, and the Holy Spirit brings that conviction upon the other person. So uh, that, that sort of sets us free. Very quickly then, in verse 12, he says, I have many things to say. You can't bear them now. 
Uh, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, and he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he'll declare to you the things that are to come. So the Holy Spirit reminds us, guides us into the truth. You know, sometimes when you're, when you're dealing with a problem and you just need, need a, an understanding and a verse pops into your mind, a, a biblical teaching or truth pops into your mind, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. And then very quickly, verse 14, he will glorify me. He'll take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit leads us to glorify the Father through the Son. And so Paul said there's one Holy Spirit, just one Holy Spirit. And, uh, um, uh, you know, when I was in, in college, I, I ran into uh, the charismatic movement. Y'all remember that? It's... Uh, it, it, there's vestiges of it left today. Joel Osteen's dad was charismatic, by the way. Uh, roll over in his grave if he saw. Um, uh, well, anyway. But um, uh, the, the charismatic movement was about uh, receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, I had a lot of friends. They'd gotten the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they're speaking in tongues. And it looked like a great experience. And what did I know? I was a kid, and I thought, you know, what, is, is there something to this? They seem to be really on fire for the Lord and all these other kinds of things. And that's when I started studying about who is the Holy Spirit, what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and who has the Holy Spirit, in whom does the Holy Spirit reside, and how do you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And what I found out is the Bible teaches us that if you ask Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior, you receive the Holy Spirit. You are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, you can can disobey the Spirit, and you can grieve the Holy Spirit, but that Holy Spirit is the gift of God in your life. What does that mean? That means if you're going to live and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, it just means doing what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. And 90% of that is clear from God's Word. I'm just going to tell you, you know 90% of God's will without a doubt. You know for a fact that you should always be kind and generous and loving and forgiving. You know for a fact that in every situation you should just strive to be like Jesus. You know that the Holy Spirit is always leading you to do things that glorify the Father. So anything else is not going to be of the Holy Spirit. So 90% of God's will, you've already got nailed down. Now, the other 10%, I know what we're talking about there, is, you know, like major decisions, what should I do with my life, what career, should I change jobs, you know, family, those kinds of things. Um, You know, that requires a lot of wisdom and and soul-searching and prayer and those kinds of things. But what I want to tell you is you can walk in the Holy Spirit. It's not an emotional experience. It's a matter of obedience and just doing what you already know. So Paul says there's one Spirit, one Spirit. And that's the aiming point. That's that's where we're headed. And as we're all headed there together, that's, that's the unifying Spirit in the body of Christ. And then finally, for this morning, just at the end of verse, uh, back in Ephesians 4, at the end of verse uh, 4, he says, and there is one hope that belongs to our calling. There's just one hope, and that hope is Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He's our hope of heaven. You know? he, is, he, is, he is our certainty of, of arriving in the presence of God for all eternity. Jesus Christ is our hope of heaven. Very quickly, Jesus Christ is our hope of sanctification. You know, one, of the, one of the sorrows of Christian life is knowing the gap, the distance between who I am and who Jesus is. And that process of, getting, uh, of closing the gap 
that, that process is called sanctification, looking more like Jesus, what it means to be sanctified. And the Holy Spirit is working that work of, of sanctification in us, but it is our hope in Jesus Christ that brings us along the path of sanctification, for our hope is to look like Jesus and to reflect who he is. And so he is our hope of sanctification, not my willpower, you know, not my, my, uh, my, my resolve, but it is the power of Jesus Christ given to us by the Holy Spirit. So that he, Christ is our hope of heaven. He's our hope of sanctification. Christ is the hope for your family. Jesus Christ is the hope for your family. It, 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 you know, depending on what the, the nuances and details of, of, of your family structure and life and all that are, um, it, that hope will be expressed in one way or another, but ultimately families are brought into existence in order that Jesus Christ would be honored and glorified, and that means that Christ is the head of the home and Christ is the hope of the family. And Christ is the hope of our world. He is the only hope for our world. You know, a lot of people are going to debate about best policies and what you would be doing. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's like, I was going to say we're getting ready for an election year. Did we ever stop the last election? Uh, you know, <laughs> does, does it seem we ever get a, 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 a vacation from the election uh, you, you know, there's always an election going on, and there's always somebody telling us the answer, and always somebody tells us, here's what we're going to do, and that's going to usher in the kingdom. And, you know, this one, look, I, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to tell you none of those answers work. None of them are lasting. All of them at best are diversions until they break down and somebody else comes along. But here's the thing. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, Amen. and he's the hope of our nation. He's the hope of our society. He is the hope that draws us. And so there's one hope, and that hope is in Jesus Christ. And keep your eyes fixed on him, and, and don't be discouraged or dissuaded or, or distracted by, by other things. Keep your eyes focused on Christ. Because if we're going to get through this thing together, if the body of Christ, if our church is going to be one, united, it's going to be as we have a, a, a commitment to the one body of Christ, the one Holy Spirit of God, with one hope in Jesus Christ. And that's how your life is going to be um, walking according to the calling you have in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together in prayer. And Father, I do ask that you would uh, let your Holy Spirit just work in us in a mighty and a significant way. Uh, Father, that we would very consciously and very uh, overtly and intentionally lay our lives at, at your feet and just let you have perfect sway and perfect direction, perfect control of who we are and what we say and what we do. Father, I'm just praying that you would be absolute sovereign over us and that we would be humble and obedient, that we would be useful. Father, that you would be able to mold us so that in all things, wherever we are and whatever we're doing in life, you would be receiving the glory and the praise. And I ask all of this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.